I don't know whether it's true or not uh, uh, about these psychic powers of yours. But I will say this. If God has seen fit to bless you with this gift, you should use it. Bless me? You know what God did for me? He threw an 18-wheel truck at me, bounced me into nowhere for five years. When I woke up, my, my, my girl was gone, my job was gone, my legs are just about useless. Bless me. God's been a real sport to me. Welcome to Now Playing's review of The Dead Zone. Did you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, you can... I can change it. Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. The ice is gonna break! Hosted by Arnie. Don't you know who I am? Of course I know who you are. You think I'd have you come into my son's life without checking you out? Stuart. I've been quiet around. You come highly recommended. And Jacob. The real man of the people. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. The wolf is loose. Today we're discussing The Dead Zone, starring Christopher Walken, Brooke Adams, Tom Skerritt, Martin Sheen, directed by David Cronenberg. This is Arnie, the now playing podcast co-host who's always in a dead zone. Stuart in LA. This is Jacob, and I just want to say as a side note, it's a new year. I do got a new year's resolution. I want to lose a little bit of weight, so I'm going to do the coma diet. Lose weight while you sleep. (laughs) Here, it's highly effective. Almost as good as the flu diet, which I did for the whole last week. (laughs) (laughs) Captain Trips, eh? Boy. Well, yes. Happy New Year. We did have one show, Ocean's 13, kind of a last lingering bit of 2014, really. This feels like the first show of the new year, and starting it off with Stephen King, who we just didn't spend enough time with him last Uh. year, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if I'm over those corn films yet. I if, if this wasn't a David Cronenberg film, I don't know if I'd be so excited. Are you ready to talk about this yet? I mean, we could just re-review The Stand. I know that you've been loving continuing <laughs> to talk about that book. Will they ever end? <laughs> They're done now. They are okay, done. Yes. Right. I, are you sure? I feel like you could kick out a couple more. Why stop at six? Director's cut. <laughs> yeah. It was abridged before I recorded, yes. <laughs> I promise that A... Barring any more emergency family surgeries or barring any more Captain Trips going around our own family, that the Dead Zone books and nachos will be out the same month as the movie review. And I promise it will be one show that is not nearly as long. Yeah, no need to make this a four-hour endeavor. I read it. I went back for the first time. During my heyday of Stephen King reading, I never got to the Dead Zone, but I had seen the movie quite often as a child. I rewatched the movie, of course, and read the book for the first time for this recording. And I'm the Stephen King fan for anyone joining us for the first time. I've been reading Stephen King constantly since sixth grade, and I read The Dead Zone back in high school, and I reread it for this recording, as well as Books and Nachos, as well as 
binge watched six seasons of the tv series oh wow, six seasons wow I had no idea and this wasn't no hbo show with eight episodes folks <laughs> was it full 20 what 24 episode seasons yeah like 2022 man and of course i'm the stephen king newbie here i've read a handful of his books haven't read this one hadn't seen this film before and i'm a little bit surprised i'll talk more about it when we're getting the show but this is a novel this wasn't a short story no, we did the short stories from Night Shift last year. It's going to be a number of years before we get to more short stories. Is this a long novel, then? It's 400 and some odd pages, which is short for King. Of course, because it's <laughs> King. Yeah. Yeah, it's a substantial read, but not one of his big epics. It was the book following The Stand. It came out the following year. It was his first number one hardcover. Yeah, he was a successful author, and I think that what I've read about the writing of this, this is sort of a reflection on the five years of his becoming an author, that sort of like his main character that goes into a five-year coma. This was a reflection back on the whirlwind that turned him from, yeah, an unknown guy scribbling stuff in his den to being a best-selling horror master, Stephen King. I think there's a lot of autobiography and a lot of reflection on the 70s as it came to an end in this book. I was surprised at how much it was sort of a capper on what King assesses as a pretty rotten political decade. Yeah, kind of a precursor to Forrest Gump in some ways. Definitely. Yeah, I definitely think that there is some autobiographical aspects of King in that character. It's very evident on the page. I don't think that comes through at all on screen. No. But this is an important Stephen King movie. I mean, if you look at the Stephen King filmography, when this came out in 83, Stephen King was just starting to be a major presence in movies. Yes, there was Carrie and then The Shining. Let's not even go into Salem's Lot or TV. But 82 brought Creepshow, 83, Cujo, Dead Zone, and Christine. And what's really important about The Dead Zone is it's the first Stephen King picture done by Dino De Laurentiis, which, because we're doing this in the order in which King wrote them, <laughs> we've already seen the fruits of this partnership, Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> yes, exactly. All that stuff we trashed, a lot of that night shift stuff, that's Dino. Yeah, it was The Dead Zone, then Firestarter, Cat's Eye, and so on, and Maximum Overdrive out of that, too. You know, this was a very important movie to me when I was growing up. It's why I love Christopher Walken. I know that sounds strange, but I can't tell you how many times I saw bits and pieces of this movie. And there's something about his performance and his abilities, of course, that really spooked me. I mean, I think I was fascinated by horror and the paranormal and the idea that a man could come back from a coma with these kinds of powers, that it was slowly killing him, but that he would be able to grab my hand and tell me some horrible event that was just about to happen to me. Yeah, I really responded to this movie as a kid. It really touched me, and I think it's why I always am happier when I see Christopher Walken's name in the title of any movie, be it a piece of trash or some great cult film. I just always like seeing him, largely because this and Brainstorm were just in heavy rotation during the early 80s for me. This may be the earliest Walken film I've seen. I, I'm not familiar with his entire career, more of his later stuff, you know, post-pulp fiction. But it's nice to know that Christopher Walken has pretty much always been Christopher Walken. Definitely. And keep in mind, he's an Oscar winner at this point. He's long past winning for Best Supporting Actor, Deer Hunter. So not a big star, but a, a known quantity, a respected, revered thespian. 
Yeah, this was also where I was introduced to Christopher Walken. You say that it may seem odd, Stuart, but I think for people of our age, this is the movie that we would have hit. Deer Hunter, that would have been for people far older than us, but... I was nine when this movie came out, and by the time it hit TV, I was 11. I'm in the perfect age range to be watching this kind of thing, and it was right up my alley of interest with Stephen King. It's the first thing I ever saw Christopher Walken do, and thanks to this, I've always been very fixated on him. I would seek him out after this in other types of roles, and... It was the 90s where I probably saw him the most, all of his bit parts and crap roles and then rescued by Tarantino, but... Only to fall into more crap roles, but yes. <laughs> yeah. There was a Fatboy Slim video in there where he did some dancing. There's been some amazing moments in his career. I would love to do a whole retrospective, but yeah, this would be central. If I had to name one performance that was the most important to me in Christopher Walken's, not saying his best work by a long shot. But the one that really struck a chord with me at the right age, at the right time, this is it. And David Cronenberg, this is the first David Cronenberg film I had ever seen. I would go on to see a lot more of his stuff. I'd say my favorite of his is probably the remake of The Fly. But this was my first introduction to this Canadian psychopath. Yeah, I wouldn't have known who David Cronenberg was or really many directors unless they were Steven Spielberg at the time I was watching this movie on repeat. It obviously came to me as I became to know the horror genre more in my later teen years. I filled in all of the blanks and saw all of David Cronenberg's work. This is the one that I feel is probably the least Cronenbergian, right? This is his sellout picture, right? Like he didn't write it. He took a number one bestseller by a somebody that was a horror master himself. He he didn't have to do a whole lot of work for this one. And I think other than Christopher Walken's hair turning into David Cronenberg's hair, I don't <laughs> see a lot of David Cronenberg in this movie. No, I was surprised at how little. Yeah, that's I was going to say, you know, we've done two Cronenberg films, A History of Violence and now this, and they're like the least Cronenberg films out there. <laughs> yeah. Which, which is a shame. I do love his body horror stuff. Yeah, one day we should really get to it. I get it in little moments. As we go through the movie, I think we can talk about a touch here or there. I think the way he handles the passage of time sometimes has a trademark uh, of his. But by and large, other than the fact that you're dealing with a man who has a kind of a, a split personality, as it were. Uh, there's not too much here that I think the draw was, I'm going to have a big, successful movie. Cronenberg was coming after Videodrome, a critically lauded movie, but not a big commercial hit. And he thought this would be the one, you know, working with Deborah Hill from Halloween, working with Dino, this was going to be the one that was going to be his shining. What he said in some of the DVD bonus features, which he took part in. I was actually surprised they had him talk about this. For some reason, I would think because it is the least Cronenberg film that it might be one he'd want to sweep under the rug. But he was there. He said he was just Videodrome had taken so much out of him that he needed something light and easy. And yeah. if he said that if you're used to watching comedies, this may not seem light. If you watched Videodrome, it is. It is, yes. It's much lighter than Videodrome. I'll agree <laughs> with him there. The character is heroic, and oftentimes I don't think of central protagonist in David Cronenberg this as being virtuous. Yeah, that's, I guess, the big surprise here. But it is, you know, it's got the Tassus turn quality. D Jeff Goldblum could have played this part. Uh, James Woods could have played this part. Uh, I, I can sort of see what would have drawn him 
to the material, but by and large, you got to believe that, hey, someone's offering me to make a number one best-selling novel into a movie? Done. Yeah, it's that's got to be a big appeal here, is he's working for the first time outside of Canadian bureaucracy, working with Hollywood, working with big studio actors. In Toronto. Yeah, all filmed in Canada, though. <laughs> well, that's because he liked it. I'm sure he could have shot it anywhere that he wanted to. He was comfortable. He shot it in his backyard, but he used people outside of his normal purview. And I think that it reflects that kind of commercial aspiration. I definitely think the audio mix, the style of the film, it feels very much like Videodrome or Scanners. The plot, yeah. The story, not at all. Well, let's talk about that story, Arnie. Give him the plot. We'll get into the movie. John Smith, played by Christopher Walken, was a quiet English teacher in Castle Rock, Maine, dating fellow teacher Sarah. But a car accident leaves John in a coma for five years, and when John wakes up, Sarah is married to another man. More, when he touches people, he starts to have visions. Things that have happened. Things that will happen. Wait, I'm quoting the TV show. I've watched it too much. He tells a nurse that her daughter is trapped by a fire, and that information helps save the girl's life. As word of John's gift spreads, Castle Rock Sheriff Bannerman asks John to help find a serial killer. John refuses, but a conjugal visit from Sarah helps John feel reconnected, so he agrees. I thought they were just making bookcases. <laughs> I wasn't sure why you agreed to do it. I'm, we got questions about that scene. Yeah, I. all right. I'm, I'm stretching. He has a conjugal visit from Sarah, and then he agrees. How's that? <laughs> yep. The killer turns out to be one of Sheriff Bannerman's own men, Deputy Dodd, who kills himself when discovered. But now John is quite famous for his talent, so he moves away from Castle Rock and becomes a shut-in, tutoring children in his home. He's approached by a wealthy man named Roger Stewart to tutor his boy Chris. But after tutoring the child for a period, he has a vision the boy will fall through the ice in a hockey match. John makes a scene and the boy skips the game, but his father doesn't believe it and two boys do drown in the accident. John talks to his doctor and mentions that in this vision there was a dead zone, and the doctor says that meant John was able to change the future. After this, John notices a political rally right outside his house. It's for Greg Stilson, played by Martin Sheen, running for Senate. John knew of Stilson before, introduced by Chris's dad, but at the rally, John shakes Stilson's hand and has a vision. And in this vision, Stilson has become president and is clearly insane. Stilson starts a nuclear war when a diplomatic solution would have been viable. But this vision also had a dead zone. John wrestles with this vision and decides he must kill Stilson to save the world. At a speech, John hides in a balcony with a rifle, and during Stilson's talk, he takes a shot. John misses, but Stilson grabs Sarah's child to use as a human shield. Picture of Stilson's cowardice ruin his career, and John has a final vision of Stilson killing himself. But John was shot during this attack, and he dies on the ground as credits roll. Dead Zone. Gotta say, if you hadn't read the book, if you looked at the poster, if you just knew it had Christopher Walken, I'm not sure what else you would think this movie was about. When the opening credits come on, I feel like I'm watching the Amityville Horror or something like that. It's all this, like... New England pastoral vibe here with Obu and String. It's not a horror movie score. It's not a horror movie opening. I think that they were trying to fool us. I think that they were trying to tell us that this was going to be scarier or more supernatural than it really ends up being. I wasn't sure what to make of this. It was very picturesque, and I liked that, and I really enjoyed the way that geometric shapes are cut out and very quickly, because I haven't seen this film in like 20 years, very quickly, I realized that they were putting the title in there. But during one of the pictures, 
there's like this guy in a dark rain slicker or something. I feel like these pictures carry with them something ominous. And maybe it's the music. Yeah, I, I think of Amityville Horror's opening. It had a similar... I, to me, this is the opening to, like, we would find out the Dead Zone was in a house, a haunted house of some kind. And that would have been popular at the time. That would have been the kind of horror movie people would have been expecting. 1979, when the book came out, 1983 even. I'm not sure that selling a psychic is as easy a get. I definitely thought, yeah, we're we're going for a scary version of Sixth Sense, maybe. You know, someone that could see the dead. I thought that's what the dead zone was. And he'd communicate with the dead and there'd be ghosts and, you know, something typical of King. And it ends up being very different. But you wouldn't know that from this opening. I do think it's amazing, though, that when the film finally kicks off, like, I could listen to Christopher Walken read Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, like, all day. He just needs to stop doing shit movies and do audiobooks because <laughs> yes. I'll buy them all. I'll, like, get an Audible subscription for that. Then maybe someone can fix his hair. Like, how much did that set you back? Three, four dollars? <laughs> Doesn't that make him look five years younger than, than after the coma? Stuart, didn't you have that haircut in like the I 80s? did, but I was a child. <laughs> this is a fantastic Sam's child haircut on a Hollywood star. It is an awful. <laughs> but I think it is in keeping with the character, because what we're going to find out very quickly here is this character is rather withdrawn from the world that yeah he may know a lot about books and literature but is he a virgin yeah does he not want to bang his fiance like i get the sense later on we meet his parents and his mother seems very christian like is that why he doesn't sleep with his fiance when she's like come inside and bang me like he's like no i gotta get home this was something added for the screenplay because in the book he was more than willing to bang her <laughs> he didn't get a chance to because of a car accident but he was willing to. Here, yeah, he goes into a coma because he turns down Sarah inviting him inside. They're engaged. I guess he just comes from an older sensibility. He says some things are worth waiting for. So, yes, she's ready for it. It's the 80s. They're engaged. But he doesn't want to have sex with her until they are married, which it fits the haircut. I'll put it that way. It fits the haircut. And you mentioned the mom. That was something that was much more prominent in the book. I feel like it's underdeveloped here in this movie. But she was sort of like a Carrie, Carrie's mom. Yeah, I got that vibe. But less evil, you know, not mean, but nutty. But I do feel like in all King work, uh, you know, religious fundamentalism can't help but be evil. To some degree, she did feel like she was a problem. And maybe she had instilled in him this value that he, he had to go home instead of spend the night. Is that also why they go on a date to a carnival? And I think they're the only ones there. <laughs> There's this like roller coaster scene. I don't remember seeing other people on that roller coaster. No, it was no waiting. It was them and another person. You could say that they went on an off period. You could also say this movie was really low budget. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you say Hollywood picture, but this was still a Dino De Laurentiis thing, which I believe that he and Roger Corman have competitions on who can shave a dollar to the tightest penny. Yeah, I wasn't sure if this came out before or after Scanners. I know Scanners, like they were writing the script that day for whatever they were filming. And I, it, it almost had that kind of vibe where it's like, we got a roller coaster here. Let's shoot a scene. 
it looked like outtake footage from Brainstorm, where I don't know if you remember that movie, but people recorded experiences and then they could play it back to other people that put on the helmet and people would like ride roller coasters and do that for that was a big <laughs> moment in that movie but no this is where a major part of the book kind of got shaved off the whole wheel of fortune metaphor started at this carnival in the book yeah it's very heavy-handed in the book it's also present in the pilot of the tv series but here this scene, as it plays in the movie, just made me confused. It's like Johnny gets a little bit of a headache on the roller coaster. Is he having a premonition? They filmed a scene for this movie. This was not supposed to be how the movie opened. They filmed a scene from the book where Johnny was a little boy. And what seemingly in the book gives him his first psychic powers is that as a kid, he fell on the ice and hit his head. And that blow to the brain gave him some psychic powers. He didn't have the control or the power he would have after the car accident and the coma, but he was somewhat psychic. And they filmed it. They decided they just wanted to start with Johnny as an adult. It's on the cutting room floor. But because of that, when I see Johnny here and he's getting this like headache on the roller coaster, it was confusing to me. I'm like, does he know what's going to happen to him? Yeah, my take was he always had this power, but when he was in that coma for five years, we're going to find out that the more this power is used, it's killing him. So I guess that psychic power is able to develop while he was in a coma because he was almost dead. But he had that power before, but it's just not clean storytelling. There's no reason for him to have it before. Why not just have it something that appears while he's in the coma? I, I don't. It's an unnecessary scene. It, it is confusing. It's only necessary in that it establishes the love story because he <laughs> is going to be asked to remain forever in love with Sarah, Brooke Adams, which I got to put it out right now before we even talk about the character or any of this. Brooke Adams, Jessica Harper, and Karen Allen. Yes. Can you tell them apart? <laughs> Brooke Adams is the most attractive of them because I'm like, wow, that's like a really cute Karen Allen. The nicotine stains aren't as bad on her teeth? Is that what you mean? <laughs> They're all the same age. They all had careers around the same time. They all made these kind of genre movies. Karen Allen was Raiders. Jessica Harper was Suspiria. Uh, Brooke Adams had done Body Snatchers, the remake, a movie I'm a big fan of. But yeah, all these kind of marginally talented, very similar looking actresses. I always thought they were the same person. So it was a stunner to find out this woman was not in Raiders of the Lost Ark. That said, Karen Allen would have been a better choice in this role. Hell, Woody Allen would have been a better choice <laughs> in this role. What? What are you talking about? I love Brooke Adams in this movie. I what? think she is great in this movie. She is you do exactly not. what is needed in this movie. I looked her up because I thought she was one of those other two women you mentioned. And I'm like, what have I seen her in before? Because she's so attractive and she's so good in this role. I wanted to look her up so I could reference other stuff. And I'm like, oh, I've never seen her before or since, except for sometimes they come back. She was in that? She was the wife. Okay. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought that was Karen Allen. I've forgotten all about those films. They have not come <laughs> back to my memory. Yeah, sometimes she comes back in another Stephen <laughs> King film. Uh, I can't agree with you there. I, I really feel like a, a major flaw of this movie is that she knows she has a very cute smile and she leans on that motherfucker the <laughs> whole week long. She's smiling when there's no reason to be smiling. I get the pain of the circumstance that, yes, 
in this moment, if we're to believe that this carnival was a passionate, could have been moment, then yes, it's going to be really weird that this guy wakes up five years from now still having these same feelings. And she, of course, has moved on and married again and all of that. But all of that is on Walken. Walken is the one dealing with all of that. Her, her performance, it's all smiles. Yeah, Walken tells me that he's still hooked on this girl. I don't know why she keeps coming around. I don't know what Walken actually sees in her or Johnny sees in her. She doesn't seem very appealing, but she is always popping up and coming back. I don't get it. I, I agree with you, Stuart. She's a weak part of this film for me. Then I stand alone because I... You like her smile. I like her smile. I like... <laughs> Who wouldn't? It's a nice smile. I thought she actually did very well broken up when Johnny gets in the coma, which we'll get to. But when she goes and visits him in the hospital, I thought she really played that well. And maybe I'm influenced by having read the book and I have all of that behind me, plus the TV series. But when I think about this, I just think, imagine if you were desperately in love with somebody and you basically write them off as dead and they come back, you know, and sometimes they do come back. <laughs> and what would those feelings be? And you're married, you have a child, but here's the love of your life seemingly come back as a gift from God. What would that do? I go with her. She's such a minor part of this movie. I can't believe you guys are harping on her so bad either. I wouldn't say she's a minor part. She's pivotal for the climax. She she shows up in the climax. She is not pivotal in the climax. It's her child that's involved in the climax. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it when we get there. But she's out of this movie by 15 minutes in with the exception of a couple other scenes. She's the one that got away, and her drama is as interesting as you describe, and I don't get anything of it from her performance. I do think you're bringing it in from the book, Artie, because that makes sense, that she would have these motivations. I never get her motivation seeing watching this film, and I've never read the books. I, I, I wish there was that story. I wish I knew she was pining for Johnny more than I get in this film. I, I know she comes back to bang him or, or do something, but... I never know why, really. Well, I wonder if part of that is because of the way this thing is paced, because Ugh. I remembered very little about this coming in. I've watched this movie a lot when I was single digit or very early double digit. I watched this again in 2001, right before the Dead Zone TV series. I wanted to revisit this. I still remembered so little. I was flabbergasted that by 10 minutes into the movie, Johnny's in a coma. We have like no time. Now, I'm the kind of person who usually complains, oh my God, how much time are we spending on setup? How much time until the killer shows up or whatever happens? But dear Lord, he's saying a couple lines of Poe. They're riding a roller coaster. He's kissing her goodnight. He's driving down the road. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe this is already happening. This is eight minutes into the movie and there were two and a half minutes of credits. That was only eight minutes in because it felt long to me. I honestly thought it took longer to get there. I wish it had felt like eight minutes. That six minutes really killed you. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do not think you might have a series of valid complaints against this movie. Drawing things out cannot be one of them. This is so economically paced. I thought Rankin and Bass had guested on the screenplay. I mean, this thing, it's beyond efficient. It, it almost underserves the drama. It felt like a TV adaptation almost. Like they were trying to get everything into 30 minutes. I, I just couldn't believe it. Keep in mind, back then, movies, particularly horror movies, were not expected to be over 90 minutes. So if you had a 400-page book, that just means you had to squish it a little tighter. These days, we have the luxury of having two-hour-plus movies. But 
Back in 1983, that would have been inexcusable. There's no way they would have released a two-hour cut of this movie unless, you know, you were Cuba or something like that. So they made a very economical choice. I can see other places they could have cut because if you guys are both saying you don't get the Sarah-Johnny relationship... Obviously, they needed something here to give that to you. Yeah, maybe I just wasn't engaged in the relationship, and that's why it felt long. I get that time-wise, it didn't take long to get to this coma. I just didn't care about their relationship, and that's what most of this six minutes is about. It's just so wholesome. I mean, he's even, like, injured by a milk truck. I mean, like, really? Is that the cheapest thing they could get? (laughs) Is that why it was milk? I actually put in my notes during the wreck, got milk? I mean, that's all I could think of. It seems like a parody when that milk truck comes down the road. (laughs) It does. And I thought for sure that it was going to be a lot longer before they collided because Christopher Walken's in a monsoon. He can barely see out the windshield. The truck driver's driving. There's not a drop in sight. There is no rain. His wipers are running, but it is not raining. When you see the truck from the outside, it's just the wet ground. When it jackknifes, for whatever reason it jackknifes... It looks like it's going down on a perfectly dry night. And it skids way down the road. I'm like, come on, there's friction involved here. That trailer the of milk seems to go forever before it hits him. It, it's like in Austin Powers where you get the guy screaming as the steamroller's coming at him. You get the <laughs> long shot and it's like minutes away. He can just run away. Yeah, and... It is so far away from Johnny that it wouldn't have taken great reflexes. Now, he wasn't a shitty 1970s bug, so maybe that's the reason. (laughs) The brakes weren't good either, but you'd think he'd have a million different ways to avoid this accident. And Cronenberg is a a fan of cars and car crashes. He had already made a car racing movie. You'd think he would have really gotten into this moment, but definitely not one of his uh, finest uh, vehicular screen crash-ups. No, and the coma. I know this is out of the novel, but man, I just miss that day when I just thought a bump on the head and everybody's falling into a coma. Like there had to have been wards and wards of comatose people. That was such a thing, especially, I mean, the same year King wrote this book, Coma came out, the film. Oh, right. Yeah. But this does lead to one of the Cronenbergian touches I was referring to. His chapped lips? No, well, just the way that when she finds him, he's connected to that tube. You know, Cronenberg has a whole passion about uh, man and machine and the integration of it here. And just seeing him live off of that tube, he looks so pitiful there that it it does break your heart more than anything Brooke Adams does. You feel for her character just by looking at how debilitated he is uh, in that hospital bed. And then they do a really neat ellipse where like, And then he wakes up, you know, it's an exterior cut and things are moving so fast. It feels like, oh, it was a matter of weeks or days or whatever. To him, it felt like a couple hours. But no, it was five years. I love how when he wakes up, he's like, there's no bandages. There's no wounds. I got Mm -hmm. really lucky. I mean, the way that comes through is just a really nice thing. Yeah. I thought he might be able to tell when his parents came in that they looked older, but then again, five years may not be enough to notice a difference in aging and and faces. I don't know. but Once you hit a certain age. (laughs) You you know where he should notice is apparently in these five years, one of these people at the Wysak Clinic's been styling his hair and putting in some product because (laughs) he's gone from that, what do you call a fantastic Sam? Unfantastic Sam, yes. (laughs) To this like quaffed style. There's some product in there when he wakes up. 
Yeah, I'm telling you, it turns, if you've ever seen David Cronenberg, slowly but surely throughout this movie, it is turning into his hairdo. It really is. I mean, I know him well from starring in Nightbreed. But now we get basically what I will term Dead Zone the TV series, the prototype version. All right, this is why I swore this was a short story. Because, yeah, this film is, they're going to be vignettes of different things. I'm like... Tell me, Arnie, this TV show, this was Bixby, this was the fugitive going town to town, and he was having visions in different places. Well, actually, he pretty much stayed in the same town because it it was a pretty dangerous small main town. There were bank robberies (laughs) and murders, and the sheriff even got murdered at one point. It's I'll talk more about that later, but what was shocking is I watched this before the TV series started, and I'm like, damn, I see how they made a TV series out of this. Episode one, there's a fire in the house episode two you need to see your mother episode three the ice is going to break (laughs) yeah i i really felt like you could have taken the climax of this film you could have thrown that in cat's eye it would have made a nice little segment there it does feel so fractured and i don't know if that's the book's fault i don't know if that's cronenberg and the way he's bringing it to film well is that a problem i mean yeah it's definitely an episodic story but does that make it feel undigestible no i'm not saying it's undigestible it, it's it feels stilted though I, I i'm watching this you know at one point we'll, we'll get there he'll he'll join the cops and help them find a killer i'm like oh okay we finally got into the plot of this film if you're looking for a standard plot it's not here it, it's a different type of storytelling and that did catch me off guard because i was looking for something more conventional my memory when i watched this in 2000 was one thing nuclear fucking war <laughs> and that's a pretty big thing you know compared to the ice is going to break nuclear war killing us all that was what i remembered most that was my takeaway i'm a kid of the 80s nuclear war that was the biggest scare there was so you show me somebody envisioning the president who's going to start a nuclear war man I was convinced by classmates that if something happened to Reagan, we were going to have one that George H.W. Bush was just sitting there itching to push that button. So that was my memory is that this is the story of a psychic versus a politician who's going to end the world. And that's how King wrote the book, too. So when I'm watching this back in 2000, I'm like, where the hell is Stilson? Where is Martin Sheen in this? That That is the last 15-minute episode. It is a problem for me because these episodes are very uneven. I don't have a problem with episodic storytelling. I really like Cat's Eye. But here, not all these stories are created equal. And I think the time Cronenberg spends on some rob the others of their power. Well, for me, I don't know. It's a triptych. There's three stories and they all are equally served. And they all feel scant because this movie is so brisk. I don't feel like any of them get maybe as much as they're worth, but I like all three stories in this. Uh, The three stories I would identify as serial killer, child coming out of a shell, and nuclear war. And I do like the individual stories. I think it's the connective tissue here that there's something stilted about the storytelling. Like so many times we're just told what's going on. It's not shown to us. Like at one point we find out, oh, when you use these psychic powers, they're actually killing your body. We never see that. We're just told by the doctor at one point. And I just wish I, I felt like I was going on a journey with Christopher Walken in this film instead of here's an episode and then we're going to be told some exposition and then here's another episode and then here's more exposition. Now he's just locking himself away instead of just showing me that he's being hounded by people so he had to go off this property is better served to be a tv series than it is a standalone movie that's what i really feel 
looking at this, yeah, a psychic guy that's slowly dying as he uses his powers to see the future and ultimately stop a destiny that's global. That's something that you can cover in season after season. I'm willing to bet that I've never seen a single episode of it. I'm willing to bet that that Anthony Michael Hall thing is better or more satisfying as an adaptation than this movie would be as a standalone work, just by the very nature of it being episodic. Yes, I agree. I think it does a better adaptation of King's novel. It has its flaws. But yeah, in many ways, it's better if only it had starred Christopher Walken, which is nothing against Anthony Michael Hall, but I mean, Christopher Walken rocks. But yeah, here we start off, you see it as the three big stories and it is there. But when I'm looking at it, the beginning is him just learning he has his powers and there's some cool imagery in there i love it when he's getting this like sponge bath and you see him in the bed and the bed's on fire and he's sweating and seeing the child that goldfish yeah the goldfish is boiling over i thought that was really awesome visually it's not much of a story it's over a couple minutes later it's introducing that he's now this psychic but i thought it was well done And what's really weird is it's like no one took notice, like the nurse didn't tell the doctor, hey, he told me my house is on fire, so I'm going to go run and save my kid. It's like a total surprise when the doctor finds out he's got these psychic powers. I don't know that that's true. I I think things are done very, very quickly. I I didn't get the sense that he hadn't heard. The whole town had heard. I mean, it, it ends up being a tabloid fodder story. I mean, he ends up having to hold a press conference about whether he's psychic or not because people are talking about it. But I... Took it to mean that it just had happened so quickly that the doctor wasn't prepared to be his next victim. Because literally the next scene after the house burning down and the child being rescued is he's telling his doctor where his uh, mother is after they haven't last seen each other since the Holocaust. I really did think he was going to end up being like a secret Nazi and (laughs) hiding. I thought that was going to be the reveal. (laughs) I was a little curious with the accents. Later on, there's a conversation about Hitler. I I was wondering if it might go someplace unexpected. But You're you're talking about Herbert Loam? I thought maybe Clouseau was going to come bumbling in there, but (laughs) Herbert Loam is always Pink Panther to me, so I, I... It was hard for me to see him in a more dramatic role. But what I love about this, a Cronenberging touch, is the way that Walken intermeshes with the visions. Maybe this doesn't seem novel now, but back then it was a real shock that, as you pointed out, he doesn't just see a child in a burning bedroom. He's actually in the bed watching the room burn. I mean, he himself, the way they have it rigged up, it looks like his body is burning. That was really neat. And pre-CGI, I want to point out, Christopher Walken is really sitting in a bed on (laughs) fire. I mean, that was dangerous. It makes you feel the toll that it's taking on him psychically. It's hard. You're not just passively watching these things. You're feeling them as well and how painful it must be not to be able to influence it. The character arc for John is that he's going to learn that he can change these destinies, that it's not fated to be the way that he sees it. But for the first half of this movie, he's just haunted by them. But it did seem weird. It seemed inconsistent with that first vision. He's, I don't know, maybe I just assumed that the daughter would have died in that fire, but he does change the future there. Maybe, maybe not. It's kind of, it was just currently taking place. 
Yeah, and that's the slippery slope. What I love is that he never, like, grabs someone's hand and, like, sees them just, like, eating some fried chicken or, you know, something mundane. It's always, like, <laughs> this worst, horrible thing. There's something about his condition. Not only can he see the future, but he, like, finds the one moment you don't want to go to. Yeah, I love the confrontation with the news reporter. He's like, do you want me to tell you why your sister really committed suicide? Like, and it just leaves it there. And it, it's just, it's just such a tantalizing line, though. Well, also, though, notice that here John can be touched and doesn't always see anything. He only sees if there's something important to see, whereas in King's book, it's less controllable. And hell, in the TV show, he's practically Howie Mandel in that you just cannot touch him. Of Johnny's rehab, though, this time watching, I was paying close attention to his personal trainer, because that's actually a really important supporting character in the TV series. And I couldn't remember if he did anything in this movie. He does nothing but wear the most 80s running suit in the world. <laughs> and leave him behind. I love the fact that he's supposed to be helping this man learn to walk again. He's been in a bed, you know, ligaments have atrophied and what have you. And he's like, no, I, if you're not going to go any faster, I'm going to jog around the building. Oh, <laughs> all right. I didn't realize it was about you. <laughs> Don't let me slow you down with my cane. <laughs> But it comes at just the right moment because he has to face the fact that Sarah is back in his life. And even worse, she's turned into Liza Minnelli. <laughs> that hair. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> That's who I may be thinking she was. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you know five years have passed. Different haircuts for everyone. Yeah. She gave up being a teacher. She's a full-time mother. She's married and trying to make the best of it. In the book, obviously, they could explore more about how happy she was in the marriage. Here, I feel like these scenes are awkward. And again, I lay that at the blame of Brooke Adams just not having a, a complicated performance here. I don't think Walken's very good in this reunion scene, though, because I was watching it. I get that she's happy to see him because she's smiling a lot. <laughs> I mean, she would be happy that he's awake. He's not mentally handicapped at this point, but he quotes Legend of Sleepy Hollow is like, leave me alone. I have no debts and I'm not married. And he sends her away. Now, obviously, I can project he'd be upset that she's married and whatnot, but I don't get from Walken's performance why he would behave this way. To him, it was yesterday. To her, it was five years. I mean, that's a line of dialogue. So does she wish she hadn't married? I mean, that's what we don't know is uh, would she have waited if she knew that he would have come out? I think we find that out in a few scenes. Yes, I think she would have waited, I think. Yes, I guess so, yes. She's not happy with her compromise. She had It, it gave her Denny, not to be confused with Danny. <laughs> that's The Shining. Denny, not character from The Shining. But that's all that she seems to like about her current relationship. And so she's kind of floating around for the rest of this movie. She comes in and out and at some point initiates his first sex, right? I mean, he loses his virginity. He has to have had some, right? He seems very... Now that you've brought this scene up, he didn't seem nervous, fumbling, and I didn't get the impression it was over in 15 seconds, so he has to have had it before. It's the, like, least hot sex scene I can recall seeing in quite some time. There's, like, bags of potato chips lying around, <laughs> the kids in the next room. So it's realistic, is what you're saying. <laughs> His dad shows up afterwards for dinner. They describe <laughs> it as making bookshelves. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. Was there a line of dialogue I missed? Uh, but I don't know why he referred to it as that. I haven't heard that euphemism used before, but I will now use it forever. I don't even know what that means. Like I'm trying to think. laying some wood on the yeah laying wood. I don't know banging a nail into a. I don't know polishing the lumber. 
But yeah, here, she's very confusing. This is my problem. The Sarah storyline is underserved. You said she plays a part in the end. She shows up at the end. But she does just float in and out of this movie for reasons completely unknown to me. I don't understand how she influences his motivations very clearly. Because before she beds him, the sheriff, played by Tom Skerritt, who he just needs to have like a tattoo of a badge on him because after picket fences this he just seems like a perennial cop to me but at this point was largely known for alien yes and he'd be in top gun the year after but i'm watching this and i'm thinking picket fences he comes and asks john for help and john says no and this is where i think christopher walken's performance really starts to take off he when he gives that speech about how good god has been to him or god has blessed him that is oh he's been a real sport to me yeah yeah, I do wish they had gotten a little bit more of the mother in here. You know, she dies in a very quick scene, and we can see that she's embroidered phrases from the Bible all over the place. But I think that that having that complicated feeling about his mother and underlining it, it would make it more interesting the way that he's grappling with this, quote, God-given gift. Yeah, when his mother dies, it's during that press conference, and I thought maybe, I don't know, did she have a heart attack because he used his psychic powers and that's a mark against God or something? I, I was waiting for that to play more of a part into this film. That's the way it plays. I mean, that it plays like he's doing something demonic, he's doing something unnatural, my son is sinning. Yeah, I would have liked to seen him deal with that conflict, though. Does he feel responsible for his mother's death? I think that could have deepened the character. We're all saying we don't know why he finally decides to help this sheriff because he had sex, because that's what the script called for. I mean, (laughs) I took it as he finally sees, you know, there's been another death. And I don't know. There was something about it for three and a half years. This has been going on. And I think it's like, you know what? I've missed out on five years. I could influence something in the past. I could fix something that I missed out on. But it's not very clear why he decides to help the sheriff. Nope, but it, it gets us there fast. Again, this movie moves so quickly. 43 it- minutes. <laughs> because I thought this is where the plot was actually kicking in. Yeah, I could see why you'd think that. Because there hasn't really been one. And so if there's a serial killer out there, it's on the news and everything. And it's the Castle Rock killer. I mean, this if you think of nothing else about King, you know Castle Rock yes. is his fictional town. So you got to think this is your main plot. But no, this is just going to be another vignette. This is the first time we've been to Castle Rock in the movies, right? Yeah, it's we're lucky because we're doing the movies all out of order. But this was the first book in which he invoked Castle Rock. So it would make sense. None of the short stories there, unless they retroactively added a mention here or there. Did you guess who the killer was? I mean, we didn't have much chance to, and there's not a lot of suspects. I mean, obviously, it could be a total stranger, but they do their best to plant clues. Ever since Tom Skerritt shows up, he's accompanied by Deputy Dodd, who is the skeptic, who is the one that is always saying, you don't want to mess with this guy, you don't want to bring this guy in, who's always naysaying the inclusion of Christopher Walken into their crime scene. The reason being, I'll go ahead and spoil it, he is the killer, and he's probably afraid that when he's handing evidence bags over to the guy, he's going to realize it's him. You know, because I expected this to be the next 45 minutes and we get more clues and more hints, as I thought this was the main plot, I didn't pay much attention to Dodd early on. And this gets wrapped up so quickly. I mean, there's some great stuff. Again, when he finally has that vision, they'll find a fresh dead body. He'll touch it. And like we're saying, when he was interacting with the vision, with the fire, the way he's like, she knew him. She knew him. 
I could see his face. Like I love the the performance that he gives as he's interacting with that vision of the dead girl. Oh, I like all the scenes of this investigation. When they're going to the place where they found the cigarette butts, I really like just the look of that long cavern. I thought for sure my memory was that he'd have some kind of vision there with the cigarette butts, but he didn't. I'm not sure he didn't. He might have realized it was Dodd then, but realized, oh, I'm just confusing it with the guy that's handing me the bat. They didn't get the sound effect and he didn't make the jerky motion. That's true. You're right. Every time he has a real moment where he's in the moment, uh, yeah, he does that great... uh, I think Cronenberg said he would fire a gun. Yeah, that's what he had never fired a gun before. This was Walken's idea. Walken handed him a 44 Magnum and said, (laughs) when you want me to shake, you don't tell me. You just fire the gun. So every time he'd spasm, there was a gunshot. Awesome. (laughs) I hear about directors doing that to their actors. Not too often do I hear actors requesting such a treatment. But hey, it works. And I do love it. And and I love Walken. In this part, I I do feel like, yes, this could be the pilot to a TV series where each week he's working with the sheriff on a new crime. That's exactly what the freaking show is. And in (laughs) fact, episode one is car accident coma. Episode two is Castle Rock Killer. Mm -hmm. And Stilson is the uh, story arc. He's the cigarette smoking man of the series. But... Yeah, that is how they set it up, the first two episodes. And it's good stuff. I mean, when they figure out it's Dodd, and I like the kill scene, I think it's good 80s slasher stuff with obscuring the face. And when they go to Dodd's house, I got a little bit of like a Silence of the Lambs type vibe going on, because he's naked up there, got some scissors, putting on a rain slicker. I'm like, what is going on? I'm waiting for him to tuck it and play beautiful horses. (laughs) Yeah, I I did like this scene where they go after Dodd. I thought there was going to be that big Cronenberg moment when we see Dodd slowly lowering himself on these scissors that he's used to kill his victims. And then we just kind of see a twitching dead body that was i thought that would have been a great moment there's not only you could be disappointed in how awful this thing is that thing is freaky come on you never see it impale him though i mean come on he did video drove where's the guns being pulled out of the stomach it was enough for me to haunt my whole childhood my whole childhood (laughs) if you said dead zone the first thing that i think about is him opening his mouth and swallowing those scissors wow it did nothing to me as a kid i was all about the nukes <laughs> this <laughs> this time the scissors itself and the slow descent part of me wonders is that even enough to kill you i mean i'm just i think it would give him one hell of a tonsillectomy <laughs> no no it, it punctures through the roof of your mouth and your brain these were some like barber scissors. I don't know how far it is from the roof of my mouth to my brain, but I know I'd have to really get deep on those to make that happen. Otherwise, I'm just picking my nose for through the roof of my mouth. <laughs> Dodd must sharpen them because he uses these to kill everyone. The one thing they might have done is sped up the film so it looked like, you know, he does slow down as he's nearing it. You really need to like slam your head into it yeah. if you're going to do it. But I'm telling you, the effect, the implication of what happened was gross enough for me. I still think it's pretty icky. No complaints on this whole stuff. It's shorthand, guys. I mean, what do you want me to say? They're redoing Psycho in 20 minutes. And is that totally satisfying? Well, it's not as good as Psycho. But given that they have to cover a decade of investigations and everything that's in the book in 90 minutes... That's the cost for this being a theatrical movie is that, yeah, this is a well done little moment, but it feels a little bit trite just because it's so abbreviated. 
No, no, it's a, it's not that they do it psycho in 90 minutes. They do it in 10 minutes here with this whole investigation. And again, Walken gets shot. Dodd's mom pulls out a gun, shoots him. And so I'm like, okay, so this movie isn't about looking for the Castle Rock killer. Okay, maybe he got shot. Now he's going to lose his powers, but he knows he's got to solve one more thing. Like, I'm trying to figure out the plot here because it, it's continually just changing up here. But nope, that's not where it goes. He now just moves away and goes into hiding, I guess. <laughs> yeah. The biggest pisser to me is he's shot in the gut and then we find him in hiding. Why shoot him and not have that be nothing? He has no further injuries, no impact whatsoever. It went just right through the meat, he said. The impact is why he goes into hiding. I mean, the whole idea of helping people, if you're going to just end up getting shot for it, that's it. This is my one and only case. Yeah, that's in the book, but that's not what I'm taking from this movie with Walken's performance and the lines given. I'm trying to review this movie for what Cronenberg put in the film, and this movie doesn't give me a lot, so I'm hanging on what it does, but... I read it as he had even more publicity after the Castle Rock killer was killed, and so now everybody wants a piece of him. Sure. Everybody's trying to get him to use his power for them, and that's why he's in hiding. I didn't get anything about the bullet from that. Yeah, I took it the same way, Arnie. He's he's too popular now, but he's running a business out of his home. It's not like he's a hermit. Like He's still going by his name. People can still see who he is. I mean, obviously, people know who he is or he's going to get a, a approach, but I, it's weird. I don't know. Maybe I'm just thinking about this in the Internet age where videos would have been thrown up on YouTube and this guy wouldn't go into hiding. It was different than in the 80s. His idea of hiding is not to touch. If he knows that if he avoids touching people, then he's going to get through his life and not have that experience. This was a traumatic episode. And, um, you know, I'm not sure that he really even saved any girls. I mean, there was no like female hanging in the balance that they saved at the last minute. They, you know, he got away with killing seven girls. So I just see this as a natural result of feeling like you failed and withdrawing, leaving his own father and yeah, trying to get back to what you love. I don't know that they mention it in the movie, but in the book, he tried to go back to teaching and it was not allowed. So tutoring is as close to that as, as what he can do. Yeah. And. This brings us to the storyline I like least in this. And what's funny is his line delivery, I already quoted it, is one of the most memorable things in this movie. But him tutoring the boy and the boy having a hockey rink possible accident, it's starting to set up Stilson. I like the fact that Stilson is kind of in the background throughout this. You see the billboard for Stilson. And when he's tutoring the boy, the father is a friend of Stilson's. But... Really, we're going to focus only on Chris Stewart for the next 20 minutes, and it's a necessary story to introduce the concept of the dead zone and that to show us in a small way that John can change the future. But man, I wish it was something more interesting than this. Yeah, again, I thought the story was going like when he gets hired by Roger Stewart that we see Stuart no stills and I'm like, okay, they're going to like kidnap him, use him to make psychic predictions about elections so they could win some political entry. Nope. It's he's going to bond with the kid. Here's the problem is there's no way I can pretend. I don't know the structure and the setup of this movie. I saw it so many times and at an impressionable age, I love this part because this was me. You know, I loved it because, oh, here's a kid and he's going to relate to this guy. And that's the experience I wanted to have. What if he was my teacher? 
this was an important moment to me. I mean, I do think the first time I ever saw a man cry on screen was watching Christopher Walken say goodbye to Sarah on his doorstep. She and her husband are shilling for Stilson. He closes the door and the kid comes down to see what's wrong and he starts weeping. That has always impacted me. I mean, this is obviously not as exciting as a serial killer or a madman that's going to start nuclear war, but I think it's a necessary bridge to dealing with his inner child. I mean, quite literally, this is him with treating to his inner child and working through his feelings about how he can impact the world. Well, I do think it's worth pointing out that this story wasn't in the original book. This is something modified from the original book. In the original novel, it was a graduation party. The kid was much older. So, Stuart, you're connecting with this kid. But if they'd gone with the King pros, it was somebody studying for his SATs with Johnny's help, and it was going to be a party where a building was struck by lightning. Here, they changed it to the hockey game, the ice breaking. I don't think I would have liked the lightning strike story any better in this movie, but it needed something else to make this connect. I mean, maybe again, like Sarah, if she had more of a character, I'd care a little bit more about this relationship with Chris. Like, I thought he was like an autistic mute (laughs) or something, the way his dad described him. And then, no, he's just kind of like, nah, my dad doesn't get me. And Christopher Hawkins like, cool, we're best friends now. Yeah, it is. Boom. Like, I didn't get what the conflict was. I mean, isn't that interesting, though? Isn't that more interesting than if she he was autistic? I'm not saying he needed to be autistic, but it gets resolved so quickly. And so I don't I don't feel there's a relationship there. But you got to get over that. I mean, this movie, in order to tell the 400 page story moves too quickly. Yes. I don't know what else to say. You, I think Cronenberg is doing an expert job of keeping it moving. It's a shame that it had to be a 90 minute movie. Well, no, Stuart, you, you came up with the solution yourself when you said there's no woman hanging in the balance. Why not consolidate all of this and have it that Johnny finds out through catching Dodd that there's this dead zone that allows him to change the powers, thus adding 50% of the time back to the Castle Rock Killer and 50% of the time back to the Stilson story. You just cut the Chris bit. See, I like the Chris bit. I like the idea that he's interacting with a kid who he sees himself in and that uh, no one else sees. And I mean, this scared me as a kid. The whole idea, that shot of those kids sinking below the ice and drowning, chilling, terrifying stuff. Literally chilling. Yeah, yeah no, it, it is scary <laughs> stuff. I played hockey when I was a kid, and that's a chilling view. I guess you're saying Cronenberg did a great job cutting this down from 400 pages. To me, having not read that book, this looks like he took a 30-page short story and had to expand it to 90 minutes. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, I mean, keep in mind, in the novel, while all these things are happening in and out, there are whole subplots with other characters. That Stilson is telling stories about how he kicked a dog to death. Yes, and this is needed stuff. This is what makes that book good. Yeah, no, bullshit. This is what the TV (laughs) series does right. This is what the book does tremendously, is you need those threads running through. While Johnny's in a coma, we're introduced to the killer. That's great. Before Johnny's ever in a coma, we're introduced to Stilson, and we get to see his background. I like that these are being set up so that when we get to these stories, they matter. The fact that we spend so little time on Martin Sheen, one of my favorite actors from childhood. I was a big Sheen fan, the whole Sheen family, including the Estevez. And 
I really thought he should be introduced in this movie at the 30 minute mark. He's really introduced at about the 45 minute mark. He doesn't become important until the one hour mark. And that is way too little for the end of the world. I don't see what you get by seeing him. You do have one scene. It's the one scene I would cut from this movie. This movie's otherwise efficient. You have one scene that doesn't have Walken in it where he's blackmailing some editorialist at a newspaper with dirty photographs or something like that. You need that scene. It sets up why he'd be so slimy to start nuclear war. I I felt like they did need to set that character up better because it it would seem so cheesy if there's just this vision. He's like, "Ah, I'm going to set off the nukes. Like, I do want to see that he's a bad politician. I think that it's pretty obvious he's a bad politician from the word go. He is fundraising at the Stewart household. That's how we first see him. And just the, the stories he's telling and saying, I need your money and his laugh and all that. It's a big performance. Isn't that every politician, though? Yeah. How is he any different than anybody else running for public office? There's a persona that you have. I mean, Admittedly, he looked like Blagojevich to me, for those that know Chicago (laughs) politics, but that just meant that I was not supporting Blagojevich. He didn't have the right hair. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. The similarities were creepy here. I I did think it was weird that a senator, like, you only get two of those per state, and he's spending a lot of time in these little towns. You can apply the logic of this or not. I think it was efficient to bring it in at this time. I like the idea that if you didn't pick it up from Sheen's performance, this character, Stuart, turns around and even says it. He's just like, well, if you're not registered to vote, get registered and make sure this guy doesn't go into office. He's dangerous. I mean, they foreshadow it pretty early on. You don't need five other scenes of seeing this guy being corrupt. Look at the goon he's got always at his side. That's like (laughs) clearly an extra from The Godfather. But I want to be shown stuff not told and i feel like a lot again like the whole what the dead zone is we're just going to be told it's just straight up exposition that we're finally going to be told that this whole power is killing walking we're just going to be told that like i want to be shown these things the movie is about walking the book tried to be about the decade and while it made for an interesting book and i i like that i mean like he even like meets Jimmy Carter and like real political figures and all. Yeah, that. That's where I was thinking like the Forrest Gump bit. I'm like, <laughs> I would love to see that film today and do the Forrest Gump shake Jimmy Carter's hand and all that. Use old footage. As someone that likes the 70s and politics and all of that, I thought that was all very interesting. I love to see King's basically assessment of what the decade had been like to live through. But if you're going to make a movie in 1983 about the 70s, I just don't think it would work. I think that they were right to focus on basically the story of a man who is afflicted with a gift that's also a curse. That means that he can never love the woman that he really wants, but he can also save us all. That, you know, it's a martyr story. It's a, he becomes a Christ figure. I think it's wise to completely focus on walking and Every supporting character that got cut from the novel needed to be cut from the movie. I disagree. And King's impetus writing this, I mean, it came out to be somewhat autobiographical, but he was really interested in murderers and killers just from childhood. You know, I talk about some of that in my stand podcast and his idea coming into this was, could you take a presidential assassin? Could you take a Harvey Lee Oswald and make him a sympathetic character? What would it take to make him a sympathetic character? And it's important to have all these other characters set up if you want to really drive that impact home. If the way it's set up here, it is just so one-sided. I'll ask you guys, because about 25 years after he published this book, King came out in a second book and said, you know, 
I kind of screwed with everybody on the dead zone because everybody ended up siding with Johnny. But what if he was wrong? He said he sees the future. How many presidential assassins don't say that? They all say that. They all say that they're saving lives by killing this guy. And I did get that vibe. I was wondering if they were going to go there, like bringing the question, maybe Johnny isn't the hero. Maybe he is crazy like every assassinator out there. I was wondering if they would go there because I was definitely that was going through my mind as I watched this. Keep in mind, this movie's coming out two years after someone tried to kill Reagan. They are not going to put out a sympathetic presidential assassin picture. They're just. They do, though. That's what they did. They did not. Balance no. it. Yes. No, no. They, we are sympathetic because we believe that he is right. And we believe he's right because we are in the visions with him. That every time that he's had a vision, it's correct. And we know that it's true. So that's why. it's They don't make his visions suspect. And they could have played it that way. They could have had him make false predictions. They could have made him a doubtable character. We know that he is Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think the book does a better job of that. I think the more we'd see of Stilson, the more would drive home the fact that this is a story about a political assassination and not just random psychic guy going out there and getting involved in various problems until he finally gets in one that gets him killed. Another thing that they had in the book that they don't have here is that ticking clock. Yeah, you get the doctor saying that using the powers is killing him. We don't really see that. But in the book, he's got a brain tumor that's going to kill him also. He has a limited amount of time to do things. Here, I mean, Stilson's just running for senator. He's a far cry from president. You think John could spend some time and just maybe try to campaign against him or something? Ah, come on. You know, he's going to get better security. Get him while they're small potatoes, right? I mean, once he's a presidential nominee, there's there's no getting near him. But uh, yeah, lest this conversation get too uncomfortable, I do feel like I'm on John's side as he's doing this. I've had enough information about Barton Sheen to know that he's corrupt and that John has to do something about it sooner than later. And I'm ready for that storyline to begin when it does. But I, I like the build into that. I like the way that it goes from him having that heartbreak over that kid. I like the way, again, in the ellipses, the way that Cronenberg has this edited, that he makes the dad promise not to take the hockey team out there. And then we cut and he's just crossing the street, gets a newspaper, sees that it happened anyway. And there's a moment of like, did Chris die? He's calling. We see the dad looking mournful. He holds a beat before we know that Chris is okay. And I do feel like Cronenberg is teasing us in the right way with this story. I don't know. I feel like the second section, it doesn't have the stakes the others do, of course, but I think it's just as well made. I think it could have been better done. You guys have railed on Sarah. I think Chris is an abysmal actor. I don't know if this kid went on to do anything. He did. Rightfully so. If this kid had had a better arc, if I could have understood, like you said, Jacob, why he refused to go to Johnny's house and yet he's so fine just once Johnny shows up. It's just all played wrong. I like the idea of what this segment's trying to do. I dislike the execution of this segment. And I do like some of those time-skipping elements you're talking about, Stuart. But there's some things that are so cartoonish about this. That whole vision he has of 
Martin Sheen's character forcing people. Oh, I love that vision. That is Martin I wish Sheen it was more believable because it's a crazy vision. Martin Sheen is chewing up the scenery. Oh my god, he is just going at it. And this is how I thought nukes were launched back then. I thought there was a briefcase <laughs> with a hand scanner. Red button. Yeah, you hear about the red button. That general's a pussy, though. I mean, he just, all right, I'll put my hand there. In an earlier draft, they were actually just going to cut off his hand and put it on there. I would have liked that a little better. You know what? In the paranoia and the propaganda that we lived through in the 80s, this was completely believable to the childhood me. I thought that this is exactly how it was going to go down. And I, again, it's why I was rooting for Christopher Walken, because he would save us from these crazy leaders. I did not realize until I watched some of the featurette material on the DVD for this, that Stilson is a wordplay on Nixon, that it's still Nixon, that this was uh, Stephen King making a commentary that we might have had a little brief Democratic Carter interlude, but that we were going to get Nixon. It's funny, he couldn't have known when this book was published we were going to get Reagan, but they obviously knew when they filmed this, there's a, a Reagan photograph prominently featured during the scene. Yeah, that is one critic's interpretation, by the way. King never said that was still Nixon, but yeah, it seems like it would fit. It certainly rhymes with Nixon, at least. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not saying definitively that that was what King intended, but knowing what I know about his political views and the way that he wrote about the 70s, yeah, I can see that in this time. And I do feel like, yeah, this is a cartoonish Nixonian figure. And uh, Martin Sheen, a big liberal, is enjoying hamming it up and parroting it. And he was right. He, at one point, says, I had a vision, I will be president. I've seen the West Wing. He gets there. He does. <laughs> true enough. I got to say, this and Apocalypse Now, I was so frightened of Martin Sheen as a kid. <laughs> Firestarter in this is what did it to me. He's not in Firestarter. Yes, he is. Is he? Well, we'll get there later right. this year. <laughs> Couple months. Him and George C. Scott, they terrified me. But yeah, I like Stilson. I love Martin Sheen in this movie. I really do. I, every time I see him from around this period, Apocalypse Now, this, I'm always struck how much he looks like Charlie Sheen did in like the early 90s before he got all fake teeth. And I mean both of them. They actually both have all fake teeth now. We saw Amazing Spider-Man. Yes. <laughs> the question is, who's crazier, Charlie Sheen now or Martin Sheen in this movie? Difficult to say. Charlie Sheen now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do like... The resolution to this, you know, Johnny, he's going to assassinate Stilson, and I'm glad it's not just a straight assassination. I like that it's like this total political blunder, like he shields himself with a baby, and that picture is what gets out and ruins his career. Like, that actually does seem like real-life politics. Like, if he was actually just hit with the bullet and lived through it, he probably would have been elected. But the fact that this embarrassing picture got out is what ruins his career. Turns the goon even against him. The goon lets the photographer get away. Nobody knew how cowardly yellow belly this guy was until he was tested by Walken in the climax here. I also like that just before we get to this nail biter, I do feel like it's a really suspenseful climax of this film. We take that one moment where he goes back to his doctor and he has that, would you have killed Hitler? I like the way that they're bookending this 
between World War II and World War III and asking the man that came out of the Holocaust, who was a man of caring and and a doctor, would he kill Hitler? That was just such a question that was going around in the 70s and 80s, you know, time travel question. Would you? I feel like that's always been the question. Like, would you kill Hitler if you had the chance to go back and Sure, yeah. That's an ageless question. Glorious bastards, yes. (laughs) It will be asked again and again. Yeah, and I like that they make that direct correlation here. Right? I like that they have the conversation, and I love the doctor's response about how he's a doctor. He has to help people, and of course he'd put a bullet in the son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah. I actually turn on subtitles. He goes into German and for Polish for a minute there, and I'm like, what do you say? Subtitles don't tell me. But I thought it was something insightful. <laughs> but no, I like that conversation. I like Johnny's solution. I just wish this was the movie. This is interesting enough to be the whole movie, or at least 50% of the movie, and it's just so perfunctory and so rushed in this manner of telling that it's not done the justice. It's great ideas, but I'm not able able to savor them. I get that. I mean, I feel like the problem could be solved by giving Cronenberg the freedom to make a two-hour movie instead of a 95-minute movie. There was a, a different ending planned as well. I know that they were talking about, you know, it, it's, it ends as abruptly as it begins, but Walken is shot. He takes Sheen's hand. He knows the future has been averted. And then Sarah is there to comfort him as he dies. I think they had some idea about having him come to her in a vision. There's the scene in the book, and I understand they filmed it where she visits his grave. Yes. But they decided to cut that and just do some voiceover for I love you and get that same emotion. There was also talk about letting him live and then having the Castle Rock killer, like, escape from jail or something. I'm like, well, I guess that would have been a way to go. <laughs> I did think there was going to be a final vision as he's holding Sarah as he dies. I don't know. They could have gone with a downer that she's left Denny and, and you know, holding out because this time she's going to wait even though he's actually dead. I think they could have done something interesting there. Now, as far as not killing Stilson, my understanding is King copped out. He was starting to become popular enough that the stuff he wrote in Rage and the stuff he said in interviews about not being afraid of people copying him, he was a little afraid at the end that somebody might use this book as inspiration to shoot Carter or something, and so... Instead of Catcher in the Rye, it was going to be the dead zone in Hinckley's pocket? (laughs) Yeah. So he made it that he missed and died as a result, so... I don't know if I will fault him for that, though, because I do love the image of pulling up a kid. And King had a problem with that. He liked this movie. I mean, like I said, this is the start of his relationship with Dino, and it started on a right note. This is one of the few films by a known director that King actually liked of his work. But the one thing he hated is that it was Sarah's child up there. He's like, of all the people, what are the odds it would be Sarah's child? And that's what I'm saying is Sarah plays no part in this. Her child is... Operation Human Shield, but that's it. Yeah. I like the fact that Sarah is just the constant reminder of what could have been, the lost opportunity, the tragedy of it were. The dual side to having this power was the meant that he could never have her. And I, I don't know. I'm glad they worked. It, it, is it improbable? Sure. But I love the fact that it's her and her child there at the end. I, I think it wouldn't be half the impact if she wasn't there. I think you do have to have a connection with the viewer to make that moment truly horrifying. It's it's just not enough to uh, hold a baby up so you're not shot in the face. It's got to be a baby you know. <laughs> it's got to be the baby that slept in the next room while you banged your girlfriend yes. who's married now. It's your child, yeah. <laughs> well, this isn't his child. Yeah, that's his child. That's not his child. I take it to mean that it's his child. It's not Denny. I took that as Denny. I didn't think 
No, Denny's older. That's the second baby. I don't remember seeing a second baby. I'm pretty sure there's just the one baby. It's a girl. I'm pretty sure there's just the one baby. Well, that could have been for budgetary reasons, but I always took it to mean <laughs> that she had it. I mean, years passed. I mean, I think. Did it? Yeah, this could have been the next week. I don't. Maybe my my viewing is confused by my reading of the book, but yeah, in the book it's different. But in here, there is one child, and it's the same one that was sleeping in the next bedroom. It would mean so much more if that was his kid. Oh well, okay. I it's funny it played that way to me anyway. But uh, yeah. So Jacob Stewart, do you recommend the Dead Zone, Jacob? I've talked a lot about how the storytelling here it is unconventional it's more vignettes than a a straight plot and it kind of bothered me you know i'd probably give it a weak recommend because i do like the different moments i like the castle rock killer segment i like these different visions i like all those pieces it just doesn't work as a whole so much for me but what moves this up from a weak recommend it's all about christopher walken for me that's what really solidifies this as a recommendable film i was reading we don't always get into all the imdb trivia and all that but i did catch a little snippet that stephen king wanted bill murray to play the john smith role and you know I've seen The Razor's Edge. I just don't think he is really a dramatic actor at that point. And, <laughs> and I, I was trying to imagine Bill Murray or just another actor in this role, you know, one that Cronenberg had worked with before. And it, to me, it's all about walking. If you want someone that's having these crazy visions and of the future and of the past and, you know, he gets stuck in them and he's a bed on fire. I don't know. Christopher Walken, seeing him with that cane, the way he moves, the way he talks, it really sells the John Smith character to me. And I like the individual moments. I don't think it works so well as a full story, but really Christopher Walken's performance is what makes this a pretty recommendable film for me. Stuart. Yeah, I agree. That is the selling point that, yeah, I think that the book does a better job of telling the story. And my guess is that it would be more fulfilling to watch that story unfold a longer period of time, like in a TV series. And this is by far one of Cronenberg's most impersonal projects. It's not one of his best films. But as a piece of acting, as a piece of celebratory work for Christopher Walken, I mean, he's riveting in this movie. And yes, in individual moments, this movie is riveting. It is not overwhelmingly powerful, largely because it's a very terse, abbreviated telling of the story. And again, I just attribute it to the fact that it was 1983 on a low budget with a director who couldn't command uh, the kind of running time that the story really demanded. But given all of those restraints, I still think this this is a good telling and definitely a recommend. Three for three on recommends. Mine's going to be a little bit weaker. I love this movie. I really enjoy this. But as far as recommending it, there's some pacing problems that I think could be major sticking issues for a lot of people. So I can't give this the world's strongest of recommends. I do love Christopher Walken in it. And I feel like while we were discussing the plot a lot of it and the writing and the pacing, we really ignored his performance here and there's so many great things he runs so many emotions the rage which is where i like him best i love him when he's shouting and just so angry the ice is gonna break i didn't know that was a a quote people liked but that is my favorite line in the movie (laughs) yeah that's mine too and i like him when he's having the serious conversations i don't think i like him necessarily as much as i like my vision of john from the book Because I think Christopher Walken is just a hard character. He's a bit of a cold character. And 
the Johnny in the book is a bit more lighthearted and has a sense of humor and things that I don't really get from Walken. I mean, I guess nowadays Walken does do a lot of comedy. He was hysterical all those times on SNL, but I don't get that from this performance of Christopher Walken's. But that doesn't necessarily matter. I'm captivated by him. When I was a kid watching this at like 11 or so, I was frightened of him. You know, as frightened as I was of the killer, and I knew he was the hero trying to stop Armageddon, but he was a scary-ass presence, too. I mean, he had psychic powers and smashing things with a cane, so he is tremendous in this. And yeah, I really like this movie from my childhood, and it's certainly so much better than most of The King we did last year. <laughs> yeah, come on, I mean... <laughs> but yes, definite Green Arrow territory, with just the codicil of... The pacing and writing is off. Definitely. If you're interested in knowing more about the dead zone, if this intrigues you, this may be a great gateway to the TV series or even better, the book, which you can hear me review over at booksandnachos.com this month. But the TV series, you know, I watched a lot of bonus features with that TV series, too. And it's this movie that actually made the TV series happen. I can believe that. Yeah. In, in more ways than one, I guess. The creators were uh, Michael Piller, who'd done a lot of stuff. Like, he's the one who made the next generation stop sucking. And his son, Sean. And he was looking through, trying to find what the next show would be, and just stumbled across a contract that when King sold the rights for The Dead Zone, he also sold the rights for the TV series. So by making this film, a company had the rights that Michael Piller was working for to do a TV series on it. And he got inspired to do that, pitched it, brought in some writers from Star Trek, some writers from X-Files. I wasn't sure if I would like it because taking Christopher Walken and casting Anthony Michael Hall in the same role, <laughs> it doesn't seem like that's a very good idea. Uh, you know, they did it with Rob Lowe. You love Rob Lowe in The Stand. Uh, maybe they all Brat Packers can uh, wind up in Stephen King projects. Anthony Michael Hall got the gig because of Pirates of Silicon Valley, a TV movie I really like about. Uh, he played Bill Gates really to a T. And in that TV series, I think they do the novel better justice. First of all, it is more elongated. They take a lot of the stories in the novel because there's a lot more going on in that novel with the psychic yes. visions. There's a story with lightning rods, for example. They actually put that in there and Johnny trying to go back and teach. They put a story about that in there. They really, especially the first season, follow a lot more in the novel. They change some interesting things, though. In order to add drama, Sarah married the sheriff. Ah. And so that was the love triangle. As Sarah and Johnny still had those feelings, Johnny was working with the sheriff solving all of these crimes. Yeah, that's good. I approve of that. And Sarah did have a child when Johnny woke up, and it was Johnny's child. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of good drama there. I watched it all first run. I know I binge rewatched it, but I watched the first five seasons, it ended after six. I watched the first five seasons. It was one of those shows that I'd let build up on my TiVo. It wasn't must-see television. It was good, though. I liked it enough to stick with it as long as I did. We didn't cover it for two reasons. One, there was no movie. We would have just been picking two episodes and covering them. We didn't do it for Blade. We're not going to do it for King. The second thing, this thing died a horrible, horrible death. Between the writer's strike and just being an expensive show with a lot of special effects... 
it was just canceled on a cliffhanger. Oh, no. It never had a resolution to the Stilson thing. Oh, no. He never stopped him? He never assassinated him? No, never. Oh, that's painful. Isn't it? And that was what kept me going back. Six years and no ending? They couldn't even, like, come out with a TV movie, like, to end it? There was talk about it. Oh, <laughs> that's a long campaign. Well, no, I mean, he started off as freaking mayor and just kept... <laughs> <laughs> So you got to move them up, move up, <laughs> mayor, governor, uh, state senator. <laughs> they tied it in in that they were the same age, Johnny and Stilson, and they'd met once as children right after Johnny hit his head on the ice. And when Stilson was sworn in as mayor is the moment that Johnny woke up from his coma. And that was what woke him up was to stop this Armageddon, which certainly looked a lot cooler than <laughs> Martin Sheen in a cabin with a briefcase. But yeah, they were starting to jump the shark a little bit. Johnny's father turned out to not be dead after being dead for so many years. It was Tom Skerritt. They actually brought Tom Skerritt in. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I want to see this. You've done a good job. I actually want to see the show. People know I am the first to grouse about when they take things nowadays, any old idea, any old movie or concept, they turn it into a series. I hate it usually because there's not enough there to make into 60 hours of television. But with Dead Zone, I can see it. I can see it being a better, more fulfilling story at 60 hours than in 90 minutes. I wish it had an ending. They talked about a TV movie. Sci-fi talked about picking it up. It was done initially for USA. It just never happened. And at this point, it's been so many years. I don't think it'll ever happen. So if you're okay with those shows that end on a cliffhanger and never get resolution, there's some fun to be had along the way. And Anthony Michael Hall, I'm going to give him some big credit. He plays a better Johnny when compared to the novel than Walken. Anthony Michael Hall is able to capture that kind of dry wit that is in this character. I really like his performance, so I don't regret binge-watching it. And if you want to know more about The Dead Zone, check it out. If it had a conclusion, I'd be able to give it a stronger recommend. But unlike Johnny, they pulled the plug on it. Yeah, it sounds like Anthony Michael Hall did Stephen King justice, whereas Christopher Walken did David Cronenberg justice. And I don't know. I love the pairing of Cronenberg and Walken. It's it's hard for me to say I, I want uh, Anthony Michael Hall, but I want to see this show. So I, I'll definitely, when I get a free moment, sh at least check out the first couple episodes. Yeah, it's worth checking out. That was why I was a little, I was a little heartbroken to strike it from this thing. But it's, on the other hand, it'd be like, we're just reviewing two episodes of a series. And I told you what they were. It was, he wakes up from a coma and tells his doctor, your mother's still alive. That's episode one. Episode two, Castle Rock Killer. Okay. But we're going to be done with King now for a while. I'm not done with King. My final part of my six-part stand review came out just a few days ago. If anybody minds, I'm just going to take one deep breath and a pause. <laughs> <laughs> but I will have my review of The Long Walk out within the next couple weeks and my review of the Dead Zone novel out before the end of January. All right. I look forward to that. And next week, we're going to start something new, a totally different type of review for us. We're going to do some Richard Linkletter romantic dramas. Yep. It's looking like he's going to be nominated and probably win this year for the Academy Award for Boyhood. We're going to cover Boyhood and we're going to cover a series he did, a franchise, if you can believe it, Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Before Midnight, a trilogy of love stories, as it were, um, that started in 1995 with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. We'll start there next Tuesday. 
And in addition, mark your calendars. In just a little over a month, on February 17th, 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific, it's going to be a milestone for now playing our first ever live podcast review for Kingsman The Secret Service. That movie got delayed. We can't wait any longer to review it. It's finally coming out, and you're going to be able to hear us review it live at nowplayingpodcast.com. Yeah, that should be really unique. I, I've got to up my game. No ums and uh, uh, needless pausing. I mean, we're going to be, yeah, people man. are going to be hearing us as we uh, crack jokes. Yeah, no more being able to bump your mic when you're not speaking and think we can't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll be the first Tuesday in many, many years that we won't have a podcast out. We will edit that show and have it out later that week. But if you want to hear Now Playing on Tuesday, you've got to come to NowPlayingPodcast.com at that time, listen live, and then we're going to be doing a bit of a Q&A after. So we hope you'll join us. Sounds good. Lots of other fun stuff along the way, too. And until next week, the missiles are flying. Hallelujah. this figured out all wrong. I always thought this power of mine was a curse, but now I can see it's a gift. Anyway, by the time you get this letter, it'll be all over. You never will understand why, Sarah. Guess nobody ever will, but I know what I'm doing. And I know I'm right. Just remember, there's never been anyone for me Except you. Just wasn't the cards for us, I guess. I'll always love you, Sarah. Johnny. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Made a lot of progress one day. Just had a talk. Hear a full review of the original Stephen King source material at our sister podcast, booksandnachos.com. There, Arnie is reviewing every book and short story by King. Come on back, Johnny. It's no fun reading myself. And also, come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. When it happens, when the spells come, it feels like... I don't know. It feels like I'm dying inside. In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and more. I'd really like to see you do some serious chugging. I'm going to take a run around the building. You stay out here? Okay. Keep chugging? Okay. See you when I get back. In our archives are also reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, Transformers, and RoboCop. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Johnny, don't leave me, please. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Now listen, Roger, we got a good thing going, and it's going strong, and I want you to be a part of it. I need your support. I need your expertise. I need your input. And most importantly, I need your money. <laughs>
You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. My line is always open, and I would welcome any help we can possibly get. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. This is why I can't go out. Live my life. Why I have to stay locked up here in the house. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Bastard! You're not the voice of the people! I am the voice of the people! The people speak through me, not you! The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its original copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Now Playing Podcast is not affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. This is not necessary, Mr. President. We have a diplomatic solution. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. How could you know that? Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. I'm going to see you again? Not like today. Go inside, you're freezing. It doesn't have to. Don't say it. Don't say it, Johnny. I'll just say goodnight. But after tutoring the child, but after tutoring the child for a period, he touches the boy. That sounds really Do you want to reword that? (laughs) Some strange pauses make that sound unwholesome. Maybe this is a Cronenberg movie. (laughs) He's practically Howie Mandel in that you just cannot touch him. I don't know what that means, but I don't want to touch Howie Mandel. Howie Mandel is a germaphobe and you're not allowed to touch him. Oh, okay. That's why he shaved his head. It's not that he's going bald. It's that hair has germs. Yeah, and if you watch Deal or No Deal, he always just did fist bumps. No handshakes. <laughs> I'm not going to watch that, but thanks for the tip. <laughs> <laughs> Ever since Tom Sherritt. Sherritt. But he was really interested in murderers and killers just from childhood. You know, I talk about some of that in my stand podcast. And... I talk about everything in the stand podcast. Um, 